Uh, thanks, Lynn. So uh, you should have an outline in the handout that you received at the door. Um, most importantly, it'd be good for you to have a Bible in your hand as well, and you can get those just out in the foyer outside those doors. Uh, I'll pray before we look at this passage. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word. I pray that your spirit would be at work among us, Father, to receive your word by faith. Uh, help me in my weakness, Lord, to speak powerfully your truth. I pray that you'd be with us now, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you don't know, I'm involved in some footy chaplaincy at the local football club in Bandura, just down Plenty Road there, Bandura Bulls. That's them training. And one of the things I've really come to enjoy about of this role is watching the way the head coach of the under-19s leads and coaches the team. Uh, he's firm and fair with the boys and single-minded in his focus on winning games and hopefully the premiership. A few weeks ago I was watching one of the home games and now Bandura had been doing great all year. Uh, we'd been sitting about second or third on the ladder but there was something about this particular day that was just off. Uh, the boys were making all sorts of silly mistakes and errors, and before you know it, frustration just came into the team. Frustrations were growing, and so mistakes by teammates were now being met with kind of unhelpful comments muttered under the breath by other teammates that classic rolling of the eyes and throwing up the hands, slapping on the thighs when someone kicks an out-of-bounds on the full. Well, of course, none of this had escaped the attention of the head coach, of course. And after the game in the change room, after he'd given him a grilling, he finished with words that went something like this. Look, I heard some of you boys whinging against each other out there today, and I want you to know that if I hear that again, you're not going to be playing the following week. I don't care who you are. With finals coming up, that was actually a pretty big call to make. If it was me, I'd be pretty hesitant to cut some of their better players off over just a few prickly comments. But you see, from the coach's perspective, uh, though these niggles uh, among the boys actually posed a great risk for the team's ultimate goal. You see, niggles left unchecked lead easily to division, and division leads easily to distraction. Instead of focusing on beating their opponents, winning games and taking the flag, their minds would have been distracted by all the internal frictions and frustrations among their teammates, all those things that come with general divisiveness. Well, in Acts 6, 1 to 7, the early church was also at risk of getting distracted from its goal. Distracted from taking the message of Jesus to more people in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth that Jesus had said and told them to in Acts 1.8. Uh, 
And like the under-19s, the risk of distraction had come about through a growing niggle among its members. But as we all know, it's a happy ending at the conclusion of Acts 6, 1-7. Instead of the word becoming stifled by distraction, it spreads because of gospel cooperation. Now, if we, like the early church, want to see many people come to trust Jesus and be made mature in him here at Bundy, then we need to work together and care for one another to reach that end. So what we're going to do is look at the problem, the solution, and the result as described in these seven verses. So let's consider the problem that arises in the early, uh, in the early church by chapter 6. Let's read verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Well, the early church had been challenged on a couple of fronts since its inception. Persecuted by the Jewish rulers and authorities in chapters 4 and the end of chapter 5, and very nearly corrupted through the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in the beginning of chapter 5. Yet even amidst these challenges, the early church experienced phenomenal growth. Through the spirit-filled preaching of the gospel, it had grown from about 120, we read in chapter 1, to 5,000 in chapter 4, verse 4, with still more being added to its number daily, chapter 5, verse 14. Thousands of people were in Jerusalem had been hearing the message of Jesus Christ, coming to believe in him and joining his new community of spirit-filled people. But with significant growth comes some pretty significant challenges. One such challenge was the basic lack of infrastructure, uh, of administrative structures required to care for the vast amount of people in this new community. But added to that was another challenge. The community was culturally diverse and, as we're going to find out, rather complex. Uh, we are told that some in the church were Hellenistic Jews. These were people who had resettled in Jerusalem from other nations, predominantly those ones in the dark orange there. They spoke Greek and were influenced by Greek culture in which they were raised. Others, though, in the church, and likely the majority, were Hebraic Jews. These were natives of Palestine, which was the area in which Jerusalem was located. They were natives of Palestine. They spoke Aramaic, and they were deeply immersed in Hebrew culture. Now, there had always been a degree of tension between these two groups of people in Jerusalem because of those cultural differences. And there was perhaps a degree of prejudice on the Hebrew side, thinking that these Hellenists 
had been perhaps tainted by the pagan cultures they'd come out of. And it would appear that perhaps some of this tension and suspicion towards each other had even tragically worked its way in to the church. So, combine a lack of administrative structures to meet the needs of thousands of people with the cultural complexities of a diverse community of people and you've got yourself fertile ground for an issue to pop up. And pop up it did when it became clear that the Hellenistic widows were somehow being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It was common in this point in history for many older Jewish widows to, who were living in the empire to, to return to Jerusalem uh, to die. And because there was no Centrelink or social security um, from the, the state in that sense back in those days, the widows were dependent on the local synagogue uh, to provide for them and their needs. But you see, when the widows became Christian, that help was cut off. Thus, they became dependent on the church to survive. Now, we don't really know how the food uh, was distributed and, and what actually led to these Hellenistic widows missing out. Luke doesn't suggest that the oversight was intentional, and it may well have just arisen from uh, poor administration and supervision. It may have just been that simple. But whatever the case, the Hellenistic Jews perceived it to be a slight against them. And as a result, a niggle comes into the church. And as so naturally happens in these circumstances, murmuring and complaining soon follow suit. Imagine the climate during the various church gatherings at this point in time. I imagine the Hellenistic believers kind of choosing to stick to themselves in one part of the room, folded arms, furrowed brow, side glances at their Hebrew brothers and sisters. Tension was in the air here. But for the apostles, this problem was more than just a matter of cultural difference and tension or administrative niggle that would hopefully just come out in the wash. No, for the apostles, they knew that left unchecked, this niggle would turn into division, and division just so easily leads to distraction. You see, the apostles had been commissioned to testify about Jesus, by Jesus. Their chief role was to preach the gospel, to keep pleading with members of their community and beyonds to find salvation in Jesus by calling on him in faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And they could see the risk this current issue posed for that mission. They knew that if they alone were going to both settle the complaint and reorganise the distribution of food, 
or they'd be completely distracted from their main task. The amount of time, energy and thought that it would require would just be phenomenally huge. Without a wise solution to this problem, the church would be malnourished spiritually through the mediocre preaching that would come. And the advancement of the gospel beyond the limits of the church would kind of just grind to a halt. There's actually quite a lot at stake in verse 1. Well, the early church is a reminder to us that where church growth is happening, where people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, are joining Jesus' people, that the risk of niggles developing into division is always just around the corner. And this should give us pause to think, because you see, we are a church, actually, that has grown over the last couple of years. We are a church with a diverse mix of people, married, singles, kids, no kids, youth, workers, white-collar, blue-collar, internationals, Aussies, And sometimes these groups, or some within them, might rub up against each other over an issue. Don't make the mistake of thinking that we are more sanctified than the early church. If division could happen in the early church, division can happen here. All it takes, really is an invitation missed, an administrative oversight, a connect card not answered, a job gone unnoticed, a perceived condescending remark. And before you know it, that murmuring begins. We need to be ready to meet these issues when they come and not let them distract us from the goal of growing in God's word and taking the message of Jesus to our community. So let's consider the solution to this problem. Uh, one of the movies uh, we watched growing up a lot as a kid, as kids, was The Sound of Music. For some reason we always watched a lot of it on Saturday afternoons. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that. Anyway, in this uh, movie, there's a song at the beginning uh, sung by the nuns at Nonberg Abbey. It's called, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? And in the song, the nuns really express their exasperation with Maria for being far too frivolous and frolicsome for the serious and contemplative life one should have at an abbey. And it's kind of interesting to note in, that by the next scene, their solution to the problem of Maria is essentially to handball her, if you remember the movie. They politely suggest she move on and try something else different, like looking after seven children of Captain Von Trapp. So that's one way of resolving relational niggles in a community, isn't it? Move one party on. But you see, outside of the sound of music, moving people on doesn't always benefit both parties. Maybe one at times, 
but not usually both. So how do you solve a problem like the widow's? How do you stop distraction in its tracks? Well, what we have in verses 2 to 6 is really a thing of beauty. You see, faced with a significant problem in the church, the apostles, through the wisdom of the Spirit, come up with a solution that restores unity, meets the practical needs, facilitates the spread of the gospel. So let's see how they did it. Read with me from verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Well, there are four things that are important to note about the way the apostles and the church address the problem. Number one, the issue was addressed quickly and transparently. The apostles don't let this problem fester. Look at how they act in the first part of verse 2. They, as soon as they hear about the issue, they seek to nip it in the bud. They are quick with their response and they are open with their response, getting everybody together to talk about a way forward. There's no attempt here of the apostles to, to deal with the issue behind the scenes to protect their image or to speak only with the chief complainers. They know that just to speak to some would only breed gossip among the many. The apostles don't give Satan an inch here. They knew Satan would want nothing more than for these internal niggles to develop into full-blown division. But that doesn't end up happening because these godly leaders deal with the issue promptly. Uh, if you are a leader of a ministry or some kind of roster team and you discover a niggle creep into your group, nip it in the bud. And if you feel overwhelmed by the complexity of the issue, then by all means speak to a pastor. But don't let the problem fester. Don't let the murmuring and the complaining take root. Relational issues tend to get worse before they get better when they're left unaddressed. Number two, the ministry of the word was preserved. Amidst the issue, the apostles resolve to prioritize the ministry of the word. 
They weren't beholden by the expectations of other people that they should do everything. They weren't so scared of how it might look for them to delegate this service. No one wants to look like the guy who doesn't want to do kind of practical stuff. But the apostles in this moment had the courage of their convictions. They knew that they'd been commissioned to Jesus to testify about him. Their primary role was to preach and to teach the gospel in the church and outside the church to the world. And in verse 4, we're told that prayer formed an important part of that ministry. The apostles knew that if they wanted to see fruit from their preached word, then they needed to pray that the Spirit would make that happen. So to neglect prayer and ministry of the word, even for something good like helping widows, would not be right for the apostles. Now, pastors aren't apostles, but the New Testament is clear that the role of a pastor and a teacher is, like the apostles, primarily to preach the word of God. In the pulpit, in pastoral contexts, and in evangelism. Uh, we see this, for instance, in Paul's words to the young pastor Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourselves, yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And helping ministers of the word to minister the word is actually a great good for the church. In Ephesians 4, we are told that pastors and teachers of the Bible are given to help the body of believers, given for your good, to equip them for works of service, verse 12, to equip them with the word so that they're not blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Verse 14. I was reflecting earlier today when I was uh, thinking about the fact that we have this conversation about conversations in regards to same-sex marriage coming up tonight. And I was thinking, what is it that has prevented me from making the grave mistake of believing that Jesus would be okay with gay marriage? Why aren't I just rolling with this issue? Well, the answer is simple, really. It's actually the years of faithful uh, Bible teaching that I've received from various pastors who have been committed to their primary calling. God has used uh, Bible teachers in my life to show me what the Bible clearly says about Jesus what it means to follow him, about his lordship, to ensure that I'm not taken captive when a new wind of teaching comes along that's contrary to his word, whatever it might be. God saves us through his word and he keeps us from making a shipwreck of our faith 
through his word. All of us have our expectations of what we think pastors should be doing. But whatever expectations you have of a pastor, keep at the top of your list that they preach and teach God's word. Number three, the widows are provided for. The apostles wisely delegate the ministry of practical care to capable people. Now, it's easy to read verse 2 and think that the apostles viewed waiting on tables as some kind of lower form of ministry, kind of a bit beneath them. But that's actually not the case. As we've already seen, they knew their primary role was preaching. And the apostles actually see this ministry of practical care is so important that they deem it worthy of choosing, of, uh, of delegating it to seven men who must be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This job wasn't just going to anybody. And these guys, the seven that would be chosen, were going to need every bit of that spirit-filled wisdom if they were going to manage with tact and sensitivity, the situation they're about to step into. That's actually a massive blessing when spiritually wise people put their hand up to oversee various needs in the church. I remember when Bundy decided to move out uh, of the hall that we're in in Bundura and buy slash build a new building. Now, although I was really excited about this at the time, there's a sense in which I was also a little bit anxious about what could happen because I had known of so many other stories where a church had committed to a building project only to have the whole thing kind of implode in relational dysfunction. Clashes over creative differences, use of money, whatever it might be. But as far as I'm aware, that didn't seem to happen here. Because God raised up so many spiritually wise people for the task. People who knew stuff about acoustics. I'm pretty sure that's what those big panels are for, although I don't really know. People that knew things about design council regulations. And these people were gracious and sensitive in how they managed their team of helpers. We should be thankful for such people and pray that God would continue to raise them up so that the needs of Jesus' people here would be continued to be well managed. Number four, all the believers happily help out and act with wisdom. The church was willing to become part of the solution. In verse 5, we read that the apostles' proposal pleased the whole group. They agreed that the apostles needed to be freed up to minister the word, and in light of this, they themselves take on the responsibility of meeting the practical needs of these widows. 
Seven capable men uh, calls, uh, accept the call of the church and begin to manage the ever-growing practical needs. Now, what's interesting is the names on the list here. What have we got? Stephen, Philip, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. They're all actually Greek names, which is a pretty good indication that the seven men chosen by the whole church were actually Hellenistic Jews. Now, this is very important to note because it actually shows the wisdom and the love of the body of believers in this church. See, the Hebraic believers were aware of the offence felt by their Hellenistic brothers and sisters in Christ. And so together with them, they decide only to, only to appoint Hellenistic Jews as the seven. That way, the oversight of their widows would be better prevented from ever happening again in the future. It's actually a beautiful example of wisdom and love. The Hebraic Jews, I'm, I'm sure, had a legitimate case to argue for 50-50 representation on that list. But instead, they thought it best to put their rights aside for the good of the Hellenists among them. Could you imagine putting, willingly putting your rights aside, your interests aside, for the sake of a person that you were having difficulties with. I'm convinced that the only reason the Hebraic Jews acted the way they did was because they were sold out on the gospel. They knew that Jesus had set his rights aside for them at the cross, so it made sense that as his followers, they would do the same thing. They loved Jesus, and I imagine they began to see how this current niggle could distract from the apostles' task of taking Jesus' gospel out to others, to their fellow countrymen in Jerusalem and beyond. Their devotion to Jesus made them willing participants in this solution. Pray that you, like they, would be single-minded about Jesus willing to do all you can to see his people united and his name proclaimed. Will the church present these men to the apostles? The apostles lay their hands on them. It's a, way, a symbolic way of passing on authority for the task, and they pray for them. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul uses the image of a body to describe how the church ought to work together. In verse 16, he writes, From him, Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In the face of division, the early church reflected that image. They worked together together 
supporting one another to meet the needs of this new megachurch and as a result to facilitate the preaching of the gospel. So what was the result of all of this? Let's look at verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. As there's no more mention of the issue, it's implied in the text that the solution had been successful in meeting the needs of the widows and dissolving the cultural tension. But we are told that three other things happen in response to the church ministering together as one body. First, with the apostles freed up to do that what they were called to do, the word of God spreads. You can almost feel the joy of Luke, the author of Acts. You can feel his joy that he must have had as he wrote these last words in this section. Jesus, through the wisdom and love of his spirit, had once again saved his church from the threat of the evil one. Persecution wouldn't be allowed to silence the church. Hypocrisy wasn't going to be allowed to corrupt the church. And division wouldn't be allowed to distract Jesus' church. Instead of complaining and division spreading in the church, the word of God spreads throughout the city. Well, secondly, with the word of God spreading, the Spirit made it take root in people's hearts. And a really big church got even bigger and quickly. But you see, because the church had committed itself to managing the needs of this big church through various gifts, it was now actually ready to deal with the demand. And thirdly, a large number of Jewish priests also hear the gospel as it spreads, and they too come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. A remarkable testimony of the power of the gospel that even those who had possibly been on the side of the persecutors in the priesthood had now come to worship Jesus as Messiah. Well, a chief lesson from this passage is that the church is at its best when its members work in support of each other under their Lord Christ. Needs are met, the gospel is preached unhindered, and the church grows. Well, niggles are always going to pop up in the church. Wherever there are people, there are going to be issues. But they don't have to distract us from the goal of seeing many people come to know Jesus in our community through the ministry of the word. So be like the early church and be willing to play your part to meet the needs of believers and to facilitate the preaching of the gospel here. Pray that you would be single-minded in your devotion to Jesus and your love of him. If you sense frustration that there is a a lack of growth groups, for example, will put your hand up to be trained to lead studies. If you think evangelism could be sort of done better here, then start writing up a proposal. 
If you think visitors could be welcomed and incorporated a bit better, well, that's great. Get a team together and start thinking about how it could be done. And all the while, play your part to encourage each other. Now, often we can be preoccupied with our areas of service. But I want you to do something tonight and over the next week. Just think of a way someone else serves in the church that is different from you and encourage them in that service. It's amazing what a culture of encouragement, how that can lift a church. I don't know about you, I feel encouraged when I get encouragement. Our brothers and sisters, heed the example of this passage. Don't allow the word of God to be stifled by distraction, but instead pray that the word of God might spread through your gospel cooperation. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus does keep his church. Father, we pray that we would be united together under the name of our Lord Jesus. Father, please uh, fill us with your spirit to unite with each other. I pray that we would be willing to set aside our rights, what we want to have happen, Lord, for the sake of others. Father, help us to be that body working together for the sake of your people and to see that gospel preached unhindered. In Jesus' name, amen.